Uh, we're looking at Luke chapter 8, 22 through 39. Luke 8, 22 through 39. One day, Jesus said to his disciples, Let us go over to the other side of the lake. So they got into a boat and set out. As they sailed, he fell asleep. A squall came down on the lake so that the boat was being swamped and they were in great danger. The disciples went and woke him saying, Master, Master, we're going to drown. He got up, rebuked the wind and the raging waters. The storm subsided and all was calm. Where is your faith? He asked his disciples. In fear and amazement, they asked one another, Who is this? He commands even the winds and the water, and they obey him. They sailed to the region of Gersanes, which is across the lake from Galilee. When Jesus stepped ashore, he was met by a demon-possessed man from the town. For a long time, this man had not worn clothes or lived in a house, but had lived in the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell at his feet, shouting at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, don't torture me. For Jesus had commanded the impure spirit to come out of the man. Many times it had seized him, and though he was chained hand and foot and kept under guard, he had broken his chains and had been driven by the demons into solitary places. Jesus asked him, what is your name? Legion, he replied, because many demons had gone into him. And they begged Jesus repeatedly not to order them to go into the abyss. A large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside. The demons begged Jesus to let them go into the pigs, and he gave them permission. When the demons came out of the man, they went into the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank and into the lake and was drowned. When those tending the pigs saw what happened, they ran off and reported this in the town and countryside, and the people went out to see what had happened. When they came to Jesus, they found the man from whom the demons had gone out, sitting at Jesus' feet, dressed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. Those who had seen it told the people how the demon-possessed man had been cured, that all the people of the region of the Gersanes asked Jesus to leave them because they were overcome with fear. So he got into the boat and left. A man from whom the demons had gone out begged to go with him, but Jesus sent him away, saying, Return home and tell how much God has done for you. So the man went away and told all over town how much Jesus had done for him. And this is God's word. Let's pray. Our Father, we ask that you would speak to us here this morning. We ask that your spirit would be alive and take your word and make it a living word that actually makes us new creations in Christ Jesus. We pray that something supernatural would happen through your powerful word, that we too could experience some of this power of Jesus. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Have you ever been shocked by how strong something was? Uh, many of you uh, know uh, Sean Murray, who is one of our former elders who moved up to Ogden area this summer. And uh, probably also know he'd recently bought a Tesla Model S, 
which is their fastest car, one of their fastest cars. Now it was like 10 some years old, so it was affordable, but it was still fast. And he asked me if I wanted to drive it. I said, absolutely. And so after church one day, I think I hopped in and drove down here and got on Bangator. And as I was going on the on-ramp, I floored it. And it was amazing. It felt like my stomach was being wrapped around my spinal cord. I'd never felt so much power from a car. And I did it a few more times until I started feeling sick from its power. And the thing is, from a distance, the car doesn't look all that different than like a Honda Accord. And it certainly doesn't have the flash of a Corvette or the lines of a Ferrari. And it sounds nothing like a 1970s Mustang with its V8. And yet, it is faster than all of those. But have you ever been surprised by the power of something that maybe doesn't look all that powerful? And see, that's what we have in our passage today. People are surprised by the power of Jesus. On one hand, he looks absolutely normal. He's completely human. He doesn't look like a conqueror. He, you know, he, he, he doesn't look like he spends all day in the gym. And yet in the end, he shows that he's more powerful than anything these people have seen. We're working our way in a, a series through the book of Luke called The King Has Come. And in our passage, Jesus comes up against two of the most powerful forces known in our world, the forces of nature and the forces of evil. We are maybe a little bit familiar with the the power of nature. You've seen the, the pictures or videos from a hurricane that comes and topples large buildings like they're toys or rips off roofs like a tin can. And Jesus then also confronts the forces of evil, a man who's been controlled by demons, a man so influenced by their power that chains cannot hold him back. And yet Jesus shows that he doesn't even need to break a sweat in order to deal with them. What are some of the powers that you fear? What are the things that make you anxious? What's keeping you up at night? What causes your heart to beat faster? Where do you feel like you're losing control and can do nothing to change it? One of the the striking things in our passage is that after each incident... The people react in fear, but their fears have shifted from fearing that thing that looked powerful, the storm, the demon-possessed man, to fearing Jesus. Who is this man that can command the wind and the waves? It's a bit counterintuitive, but one of the things I want us to see this morning is that the antidote to your fear and your anxiety is not to get rid of fear, but to, to redirect that fear to God to have a proper fear of the Lord. And one of the reasons why we struggle with fear, that we struggle with anxiety, is because we don't see God as big as we should. And so all these other things loom large in our minds. And what I want us to, what I really want you to ask yourself this morning is just this question, is Jesus bigger than your fears? Is Jesus bigger than the things you're afraid about? We're gonna look at this under two points. First, bigger than nature. And then second, bigger than evil. So bigger than nature. So far, a lot of Jesus' ministry has taken in the northern part of Israel around the Sea of Galilee. And Jesus would often use a boat, remember some of his disciples were fishermen, to cross the lake. It was a whole lot easier than walking back and forth. 
And for some reason, when I think of the Sea of Galilee, I tend to think of Bear Lake. Probably many of you have been up there, and actually the comparison isn't that far off. Bear Lake and the Sea of Galilee are about the same width, seven to eight miles. Uh, Bear Lake is longer, 18 miles, compared to the Sea of Galilee, that is 13. But one of the most striking things about Bear Lake, uh, especially when you first go up there, is you drive up over the mountains, and then all of a sudden you see this massive, deep blue lake appear. And the Sea of Galilee is in some ways very similar. It's a deep blue lake that is surrounded by these mountains. And I don't know about you, but every time we've gone up to Bear Lake, I feel like there's a storm that comes out of nowhere. I remember camping there uh, probably about eight years ago, and we're on the south part of the lake, and at night, a freak storm blew in, and it was just massive winds coming off the lakefront, and we have our family six-person tent that stands about six and a half feet tall, but the winds were so powerful that I remember in the middle of the night laying down on the the ground, reaching up, and I could touch the roof of the tent because it was being pushed down like a pancake by the winds. And it seems like every year at Bear Lake, you hear these reports of a boat capsizing from some storm that came out of nowhere. And the Sea of Galilee is very similar in that regard. Surrounded by mountains, the the mountains kind of served as a funnel that all the winds could get funneled into that uh, lake, that large lake, that Sea of Galilee, and cause these really freak storms to appear. And one of these storms comes when Jesus and his disciples are on it. And it's a bad storm. It's bad enough to make some of his disciples fear for their life. And remember, his disciples, some of them were fishermen. They were fishermen on the Sea of Galilee. They knew what it was like to be in a storm. And so this wasn't a storm that, you know, where it's like the person who's afraid of flying and every time there's some little turbulence, they grip the armrests. Now, this is more like when the pilot comes on over the intercom and has notes of fear in his voice because they just sucked in a couple birds through the engines. And when the pilot starts to fear, that's when you fear. And it's the same with the disciples. They'd been in plenty of storms, and this one had them fearing for their life. They start freaking out. We're going to drown. And they're looking around. Where's Jesus? And he's dead asleep. And people have often wondered, well, how in the world is Jesus sleeping? On one hand, he's probably just because he's exhausted. He's incredibly had a very busy ministry. But I wonder if some of it is also, it's showing us a picture of what it means to fully trust God in the middle of life's storms. It's maybe a a living example of Psalm 46, which opens up with, God is our refuge and strength, an ever-present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth give way and the mountains fall into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam and the mountains quake with their surging. We will not fear. And Jesus is showing what is possible When you fully rest in God, you can actually rest. You can even rest in the middle of storms because you're resting your life in God. And what a contrast here. Jesus is asleep and everyone else is freaking out. And the one person that could help them is asleep at the wheel, which is probably how we often feel. You're freaking out about something. You're incredibly stressed about something. You're losing your temper because of this thing that is going on in your life, and it feels like God is completely absent. You've prayed, God, where are you? Do you see what is going on down here? 
And so they run over and they have to, they shake him awake. Master, master, we're going to drown. And Jesus gets up and it's so casual. He just rebukes the wind and the waters and it stops. The lake is as smooth as glass. And maybe you noticed that word there, rebuked. Not spoke, but Jesus rebuked the wind and the raging waters. And I think that's deliberately a theological language. And for the Israelites and many ancient people, the, the sea represented an untamable force. It, it was sometimes referred to as the, the deep. It was an abode of evil. It was a power that could not be controlled. And, and we get that today, right? We see the, the water's ability to destroy things. And imagine living several thousand years ago, right, where we have even less understanding of it. The sea was an untamable force. Many of you are probably familiar with the story of Jonah in the Old Testament, who was a man who also encountered a storm out in the sea. And the way they dealt with that storm is they just threw him overboard. And Jonah describes that experience. He says, you threw me into the ocean depths and I sank down into the heart of the sea. The mighty waters engulfed me. I was buried beneath your wild and stormy waves. I sank beneath the waves and the waters closed over me. Seaweed wrapped itself around my head. I sank down to the very roots of the mountains. I was imprisoned in the earth whose gates locked forever shut. Jonah's describing something much bigger than just drowning. He's experiencing going down into the realm of the dead, a place of dark power that is engulfing him, a place where no one leaves. And I think here in our passage, this is more than just a storm but it's representing the forces of chaos and evil. It's representing the untamable powers of nature, the things that even today we cannot control. It's the forces that make our best engineers look as effective as a beetle trying to dam up a river. But Jesus speaks and the wind and the waves obey. And this explains the disciples' reaction. Who is this? He commands even the winds and the water and they obey him. In, in these people's minds, the wind, the waves, this was the most powerful force out there. There was only one entity that could control the waves and it was Yahweh, the God who made heaven and earth. And it's like they're starting to put the dots together. Wait, is that God now standing in our boat? And it asks us, forces us to ask this question, what is it that you are putting your trust in? What are you focused on? Are you running around freaking out like the disciples because of what's happening in your life? Are you overwhelmed by those forces of chaos that are beating against you, threatening to capsize everything? Or are you able to rest in a God who's bigger than the biggest things that you fear. Who merely has to speak and the most powerful forces listen. For many of us, the God that we've been trusting in is far too small. And you know that because of how much time you spend worried about all these other things. Because how much these other things consume your life, how angry you get about it, how frustrated, how worried, how anxious instead of seeing God as a God who can speak and make all things right. And this brings us to our second point. He's bigger than evil. 
So the disciples and Jesus, they arrive safely to the other side of the lake, and there Jesus runs into this demon-possessed man. And we see how just utterly tormented he's been for a long time, it says. He hasn't worn any clothes. He's lived in tombs. These tombs were likely caves carved into the cliffside. It's in the wilderness, in caves where he's lived. And it seems like he terrorized the town, and that's why they kept trying to lock him up where where they talked about that. He'd been chained hand and foot and kept under guard. But with so much evil in him, so many demons inside him, he could rip off those chains, and he wasn't bothered by how the metal lacerated his wrists. He'd lost his humanity. And ironically, though, the disciples had just seen Jesus and asked, who is this? This demon-possessed man falls at Jesus' feet and says, what do you want with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? And Jesus asks him, really, just an interesting question, a humanizing question. What is your name? But the man has lost all his identity. He has no name. Legion, because so many demons had entered into him. And then something odd happens. Jesus enters into negotiations with a demon or with demons. And they beg Jesus, don't send us into the abyss. It's a little hard to know exactly what all the abyss is and what this means. One commentator says that it seems to be the desire of demons to enter into humans or to animals in order to be able to kind of live out their passions, exert their influence. And so they did not want to return to the deep, which is the same place of that sea or the abyss where demons often reside and cannot influence others. And so the demons offer a compromise. Don't send us into the abyss, send us into the pigs. And surprisingly, Jesus says yes. I don't know why Jesus would negotiate with demons. I mean, I think of all the people you don't negotiate with, it would be demons. And then he lets them go into this herd of pigs, which isn't exactly loving for the owner of those pigs. I mean, you're really going to have to discount demon-possessed meat when you try to sell it. And then to add another layer of complexity to the story, pigs were an unclean animal. Jews wouldn't eat them. So what is a herd of pigs doing in this Jewish land? And they aren't feral pigs. Verse 34 tells us they had a shepherd. They were being tended to. But Jesus says, okay, deal. And they enter the pigs, and then we see why you can't give demons nice things. Because they always ruin them, right? They possess the pigs, and then they go stomping off into the, into the Sea of Galilee, and they all drowned. And they end up in that very place they were seeking to avoid, the deep, the abyss. And those tending them are watching all this. They're probably freaked out, and they run into town and say, hey, guys, something crazy is happening out here. And so the whole town comes out to see. They all knew this man, and there, this man that they had seen who was barely human is now sitting crisscross applesauce like a proper schoolboy dressed right before Jesus. And twice it tells us the townspeople were afraid. They begged Jesus to leave. Probably they were a little bit worried that Jesus is going to ruin their economy. He keeps letting the demons go into our animals. But they were also afraid because of what they just seen happen. They knew this man. They'd avoided him for years because he was just a shell of a human. They didn't want to even put their eyes on him. They feared this man. He couldn't be held back by chains. They had heard him wailing in the graveyard at midnight. 
And now they can't believe their eyes. Here he is, dressed, crisscross applesauce, like a proper schoolboy, learning from Jesus. And who is this man that can face such evil? His power is far too great for us. We don't want someone like this here. And so they ask him, get out of here, Jesus. And he listens and he gets back on the boat. But there's this man who runs after Jesus, says, Jesus, let me come with you. This man has gotten his life back. He's been made human again. But Jesus says, no, I've got another mission for you. Go back home and tell others what God has done for you. And he does just that. So this man went away and told all over town how much Jesus had done for him. And notice that little change. Jesus says, tell him how much God has done for you. And, and then the man says, tells him how much Jesus had done for him. The, the author is showing us something. Jesus is this God who is more powerful than anything. And the best evangelists we see in Scripture often aren't those that know the most apologetics or have studied the most theology. They're those people whose lives have been transformed by Jesus. They're the people that aren't afraid to tell others how much Jesus had done for them because they were tormented in the graveyard and now they're, light, they're living again. Jesus gave them back their life. And so here we have these two stories. They're linked by Jesus facing two of the most powerful forces in our world, nature and evil. And it shows us that we fear because there is so much in our world that we are not in control of. There are waves that can topple our buildings. There is a evil that is present in our globe that is tearing down everything that is good and beautiful. And so on one hand, it is natural to fear because we are powerless in the face of so much in our world. And sometimes you realize that. We live in a little bit of a delusion. We live in a bubble, but something happens and you realize how little you are in control of and how quickly everything can be taken away. And the way to combat that fear isn't to tell yourself just to stop worrying. Stop being afraid. Stop worrying. It's not that big of a deal, right? That's about as effective as telling yourself to stop worrying when you see a semi sliding towards you on a winter road. Just take a deep breath. It's going to be okay. That's not going to do anything to keep the semi from hitting you. The way to overcome fear is to see Jesus rightly. To have a fear of the Lord, you're going to fear. So fear the one who made heaven and earth. And to realize that he also loves you. Jesus is more powerful than all the forces of hell. Jesus is more powerful than all the forces of nature. He calms the storm. He drives the demons out. Is your God that big? Or have you kind of inflated all these things in your life that are really just shadows? And what is Jesus doing here in these miraculous works? Well, there's two things I want you to see. I think this really defines so much of what Jesus is doing. He's restoring order to the world. The sea and the storm represent the forces of chaos that want to destroy the beauty of this world. And Jesus restores that order. 
A beach can be one of the most beautiful and calming places and restful places. It can also be a place of extreme fear if there's a hurricane coming. And Jesus turns hurricanes into Hawaiian beaches. And the other thing he's doing is he's combating the forces of evil. Evil that is actively trying to strip away our humanity. That is what Satan has always wanted to do, to destroy the image of God in you. To strip away what makes you human. To make you a slave to your worst desires. To pull you into the darkness of addictions. To torment your mind. To keep you up at night in fear. To keep you engaged over and over in self-destructive behavior until you become just a shell of who you used to be. And Jesus is in the business of giving people their humanity back, making them look more like Christ. And that is what he can do for you. I think this is one of the the ways that we can think of Jesus' mission in the world, and by extension, what our job is as Jesus' people in this world, as Christians, as the church. That, That long ago, God created this beautiful garden called Eden, a place of rest and life. But that was just the start. It was a little garden, and the goal of it was for us as humanity to continue that work to expand the borders of that beautiful garden until peace and beauty was, encompassed the entire world. But sin messed it up. Evil exists, and it is hell-bent on destroying the beauty that God has created. And we see that every day in the news and in our own lives. But you see, as Christians, we know it's not always going to be that way. And Jesus' miracles here are there to remind us to be a picture, a preview of the work that he is doing and now he has called us to do by extension. To make us human again. To help bring back that beautiful garden that God has created. It's described in Isaiah 51, verse 3. The Lord will comfort his people Zion again. He will have pity on their ruins. Her desert will blossom like Eden, her barren wilderness like the garden of the Lord. Joy and gladness will be found there. Songs of thanksgiving will fill the air. You see, that's really what the church is. The church is supposed to be an oasis, a place where there is living water, a place where that garden is blossoming again as outposts in a desert of where the rest of the world is headed because of the power of God, because Christ is returning. And one thing that means that is so crucial for us as God's people is that we must be hopeful people. Despite every reason to the contrary to not be hopeful, to despair. Why? Because God is bigger than our world's biggest problems. And he has promised to make every single desert in this world blossom like the Garden of Eden. You know, the coldest time of night, especially if you ever stayed up all night outside or when you're camping or, or, or whatever, I mean, the coldest part of night is right before sunrise, right? Because the sun's been gone for hours and the temperature keeps dropping. And it's freezing, and it's been a long, dark night. But in that moment, when it's coldest, it doesn't mean that the sun is any less likely to rise. 
it means we're only getting closer to that beautiful sunrise. And we are called to be God's missionaries, to be God's ambassadors in this world to tell people what he has done for me and that we can have hope. Right? Hope is different than optimism. Optimism is when you try to see more good things happening than bad things and think, okay, the tide's going to change. But you see, hope is rooted in a reality that is outside of our present circumstances, and it is rooted in the unbreakable promises of God who says there is an eternal sunrise that is coming. And that means we as Christians need to be people who can see past the fear, past the darkness, past our present circumstances, to the hope of that sunrise. And we need to do better at that. It means we shouldn't be those living in fear. We shouldn't be those who are angry all the time. Anger is often just, ungodly anger is often just a form of fear because you don't like what's happening. You can't control what's happening. We shouldn't live in despair. But we should be people who hope because we know that Jesus is bigger than everything and he is coming soon. Let's pray. Our Father, we ask that you would help us to be hopeful people. Lord, to be able to see the present circumstances truly and how dark they are, but not be afraid of entering into that darkness because we know that that darkness will have no bearing on the hope that is coming. So we pray that we would be people that could show that hope of Jesus. We pray that we would be people who could tell others what Jesus has done for me. We pray that we could be people who enter into places of despair, places of darkness, and proclaim that a sunrise is coming and that the best truly is yet to come. And so we pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.